You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. North Korean operators fish a major pharma company. The Banduk backdoor is back and probably being distributed by mercenaries. A school district cancels classes after a ransomware attack. Man Yu continues to work on recovering its systems. The former CISA director says there are no signs of foreign manipulation of U.S. elections. Rick Howard wonders what exactly all those CISOs do. Betsy Carmelite from Booz Allen with insights from their 2021 Cyber Threat Trends Report and Cyber Shopping and the Forever Sales. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, November 30th, 2020. Reuters reported over the weekend that AstraZeneca, a leader in research toward a COVID-19 vaccine, had been prospected by North Korean intelligence operators. The attackers worked a social engineering angle against the pharma company's personnel, using LinkedIn and WhatsApp to dangle bogus job offers as fish bait before AstraZeneca employees. The attempts are thought to have been unsuccessful. South Korean Pyongyang watchers see the Kim regime is under increasing stress from both COVID-19 directly and from the pandemic's effects on the DPRK's already strained economy. Some of that stress is being turned inward, the Washington Post reports. Checkpoint researchers have noticed renewed attacks using a signed strain of the 13-year-old Banduk backdoor. The malware had previously been associated with the Lebanese and Kazakh governments, The Dark Caracol threat group has been Banduk's best-known user, but it hasn't been seen recently. Checkpoint thinks the target distribution this time around, at least, suggests the activity of an unidentified third-party mercenary group selling its attack services to governments. The infection chain has a familiar three-step structure. It begins with phishing, the fish hook being a malicious Microsoft Word attachment arriving in a zip file. Once opened, macros drop and execute an embedded PowerShell script, which in turn installs the Banduk backdoor. Many, but not all, of the executables have been signed with valid certificates issued by CERTUM. 
Checkpoint says this suggests a connection to Dark Caracal, which itself had been attributed to Lebanon's General Security Directorate. Checkpoint, however, thinks the range of activity suggests an offensive infrastructure is being sold by a third party to governments and threat actors worldwide. Sectors targeted include government agencies, financial services, energy, the food industry, healthcare, education, IT, and legal organizations. And Banduk attacks have affected Singapore, Cyprus, Chile, Italy, the United States, Turkey, Switzerland, Indonesia, and Germany. Baltimore County hasn't resolved the effects of the pre-Thanksgiving ransomware attack it sustained. WJZ reports that the school district will continue to suspend instruction on Monday and Tuesday of this week, at least. Details on the attack remain sparse as the schools concentrate on recovery. According to WJZ, the Baltimore CBS affiliate, the Baltimore County Public Schools have told faculty, staff, and students that it's safe to use Chromebooks issued by the school district and to use Baltimore County Public Schools' Google accounts. They should not use school-issued Windows devices until further notice. A Maryland state audit of the Baltimore County Schools' cybersecurity posture, released the day before ransomware shut down classes last Wednesday, found significant risk in the system. Baltimore Sun quotes the Office of Legislative Assessments as concluding, quote, significant risks existed within BCPS's computer network. For example, monitoring of security activities over critical systems was not sufficient and its computer network was not properly secured, End quote. Schools generally have found it difficult to cope with the remote learning needs the COVID-19 pandemic has imposed. The Washington Post last week reported that the Fairfax, Virginia schools we're seeing a significant increase in failing academic progress, and that's without any malicious intervention in distance learning. Nor is this a problem confined to the United States. The Wall Street Journal has an account of the difficulties schools in India are having delivering remote learning. So schools' adaptation to new methods of instruction has often proven fragile, and like any online operation, it's also been distinctly vulnerable to disruption by ransomware attack. The analogy with criminal attacks on healthcare providers is obvious. Consciousless hoods will hit organizations when they're under stress and most vulnerable. Premier League football club Manchester United has continued to play its matches, but its recent ransomware incident remains under investigation. Some internal systems remain unavailable, according to Info Security magazine. Britain's National Cybersecurity Center is investigating. There's no word yet on any ransom demands. Speaking on CBS's 60 Minutes yesterday, former CISA director Krebs was particularly concerned to debunk claims of foreign manipulation of U.S. voting systems and vote counting. So we spent something on the order of three and a half years of gaming out every possible scenario for how a foreign actor could interfere with an election. Countless, countless scenarios. There's a theory in circulation, for example, that software used in Dominion voting systems was developed in Venezuela under the direction of the late strongman Hugo Chavez and that such software is designed to corrupt and manipulate U.S. vote tallies. Krebs says it's all hooey. Boats aren't being counted offshore, and there's no evidence in either initial counts or recounts that the U.S. election was stolen by any combination of foreign intelligence services or transnational so, groups. Yeah. There's no evidence that any machine 
that I'm aware of has been manipulated by a foreign power. Period. That's former CISA director Christopher Krebs on CBS's 60 Minutes. Imperva's monthly cyber threat index extrapolates from the recent attack trends and sees bad bots as a major problem during the online holiday shopping season. This represents a general trend toward threat automation. HelpNet Security reports that WatchGuard expects that trend to mark threat activity in the coming year as a whole. If it's occurred to you that Black Friday and Cyber Monday no longer seem as distinctive as they once did, you're not alone. The Shreveport Times notes anecdotal evidence that the online shopping season, particularly as marked by sales, has now spread beyond the two days that formerly served as hotspots of online consumption. Sales and shopping have been running for some time, and they're not stopping tomorrow. The usual cautions and counsels that apply to all online shopping, of course, apply now. Don't fall for dodgy retail sites. Be suspicious of requests for more personal information than seems reasonable for the transaction you're trying to make. Keep your software up to date and use a credit card or gift card for purchases, not a debit card or, heaven forfend, a direct transfer from your bank account. Be aware that scammers will send you emails telling you that some online account needs updating, restoration, or verification. Usually, the sender's domain will tip you off to a scam. Amazon, to take one big online brand, is unlikely to be contacting you via a Gmail address. Not everyone is advocating a shopping frenzy. Some upscale retailers, according to The Drum, have moved to the next stage of the marketing dialectic, encouraging their clientele to reject consumerism. Planet-friendly accessory and footwear brand Allbirds, for example, is actually touting a seasonal price hike as it exhorts its followers to break tradition, not the planet. Buy less, demand more is Patagonia's slogan as it would move its customers toward the mediated immediacy of globally conscious consumption. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief analyst and also our chief security officer. Rick, always great to have you back. Hey, Dave. Uh, so this week on CSO Perspectives, you were talking about the actual CISO job and where it fits into the corporate hierarchy. Now, I am sure I am not alone, and I'm sure you got this a lot when you were back at Palo Alto, where people would pass you by in the hallway and they'd go, what the heck does that guy do? Right? <laughs> I, my whole career. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So you've been able to keep that mysterious. Uh <laughs> But uh, but so but seriously, I mean, who who does the CISO work for? Well, there are many schools of thought about that today, and and really, there is no correct answer. Okay, and it's really dependent on the organization's culture. All right, uh, but to understand why that is the case, you got to be very clear about uh, that the title, the CSO, in most cases, does not have the same weight and authority as other officers in the organization that have both the C and the O in their title, you know, like the chief executive Mm. officer, the chief technology officer, and the chief legal officer. Now, according to Chalon David over at Smart Business, shareholders elect board directors to oversee the business, and then these directors choose officers to run the company day-to-day. Because Mm. of their officer role, I got that in air quotes, all right, these people, <laughs> these people assume a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. The rest of the organization's people are just employees. So, and typically, CSOs and CIOs, for that matter, are not corporate officers. They are employees with kind of fancy titles. So they're C-suite in name only? Yeah, that's really the case, right? Because they needed some authority, but uh, boards and uh, the higher-ups didn't think they needed the full weight of a corporate officer. So what's interesting is that the corporate structure was really the, has been the same for like, you know, 80 years. It started back in the early 1930s and didn't really change until the mid 1980s. And then CEOs started to realize that these newfangled personal computers, you know, they, they might be more than just data processing machines, that they might be the nucleus of a business strategy that could give them a competitive edge. Right. Imagine that. Yeah. Amazing about how they came to that, right? So around 1985, American Airlines hires this guy by the name of Max Hopper and gave him this lofty title of vice president of information technology. And mm-hmm. according to CIO magazine, this made Max the first ever CIO. Now, it was mm-hmm. so important that uh, Harvard Business School's James Cash said that Hopper legitimized the role by making it clear that we that he had made a unique contribution to be from the executive who understood technology and can help influence strategy. Just a year after that, Business Week magazine declared that the CIO was management's newest star. So that's great for them, all right? But the bad news is we didn't get the first CISO until 10 years later. In 1995, in the wake of a very public Russian malware incident, Citicorp hired a guy by the name of Steve Katz as the first ever chief information security officer. And Steve uh, is and was a great avatar for what a CISO should be. He was cut out of the same cloth as Hopper, a technician who could talk to business leaders. 
But unfortunately, other CISOs hired after him didn't quite meet that standard. And now this is a gross generalization, all right? But many, because <laughs> right? as I'm one to do. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. brace for it. Wait, hang on, everybody, all right? So, <laughs> uh, but most new CISOs that came after Steve grew up on the technical side, uh, myself included. And we had difficulty expressing technical risk in terms that business leaders can understand. We couldn't convert technical risk into business risk. Yeah, I, you know, I I remember those early days, and it would seem like you know everything on the on the technical side was always a crisis, that, and it was sort of mysterious to the folks in the boardroom. Yeah, oh man, that was so true back in those days, and we thought everything that happened, you know, was going to burn the house down, and. And CISOs got their reputation quickly for being the doctor no of the organization. Right, right, right. right they said right. no to a lot of many internet projects, and they got their reputation for being so hard to work with that the corporate officers decided they didn't want to deal with them on a daily basis. So it wasn't long before senior management started to stuff CISOs underneath the CIO within the organization. Hmm. So, I mean, is that where we are these days? Is that where most CISOs land or they're working for the CIO? Yeah, in most cases, that's true. The bulk of the CISOs out there work for the CIO. But there are other organizations where the CISO and the CIO are peers and both work for either the same executive or different executives. And, and that's what we're talking about in this week's CSO Perspectives. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, be sure to check that out. That is CSO Perspectives. It is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out all about it over on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Betsy Carmelite. She's a senior associate at Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, Betsy, you and your team uh, there at Booz Allen have recently published the 2021 Cyber Threat Trends Report. Um, and one of the things I wanted to, to highlight there was work that you all have been doing on, on contact tracing and, and some of the potential cyber attacks that could be associated with that. What can you share with us today? Sure, sure. Um, in relation to that report, this is really the, the new lens through which we're seeing the realities of the pandemic and we're seeing the world you know, moving forward with advances in technology such as these contact tracing apps. So what we're seeing is that these COVID-19 contact tracing apps and their ecosystems, we believe, have created opportunity and made it appealing for threat actors, possibly state-aligned or for-profit criminals and trolls to target these apps. Um, and because the apps are being developed on a country-by-country -country basis to track nationwide data, uh, some of that is mandatory tracing in, in, in countries. We've seen this in Singapore in recent weeks, for example, 
as of July 2020, Qatar, for example, has achieved a 91% adoption rate through its installation mandate. There's really a large potential for um, large-scale targeted operations against the apps and the data that they hold. You know, just uh, in the past few days, I saw my my phone popped up here in Maryland and said, you know, would you like to, to take part in contact tracing here locally? So it was interesting to me that we're continuing to see this rollout, um, I suppose in this case, better late than never. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, what are you all think, thinking in terms of mitigations for this? Sure. Um, well, to answer that, let me outline a, f- a couple of the, the risks that we're seeing here. Um, to, to your point, Dave, in the U.S., we do have a little bit of security here in the sense that large U.S. databases of COVID app tracking or nationwide tracking um, through these apps does not exist. So that could be considered a weakness of COVID tracing, but it's a boon to our privacy here in the U.S. But hmm. um, a few of these risks, we're, we're looking at the contract tracing apps um, being developed with minimal regard for privacy and security sometimes resulting in insecure apps, centralized databases of population-wide, personally identifiable information. Uh, Secondly, adversaries may attempt to surveil these users um, or install data stealing and surveillance backdoors, uh, leading to theft of large PII databases. Uh, They could create fake outbreaks uh, and blackmail and harass users. Uh, and finally, risks of these, of these threats will be the highest in the countries with high adoption rates, which are typically uh, undemocratic countries that mandate these installations um, hmm. with steep civil and criminal penalties. Yeah. So again, I mean, what, what do you recommend then in terms of mitigations? Sure. Um, much of the burden for securing these contact tracing apps will fall on the company's contracted to develop and deploy them. So there's some accountability there for sure. Um, This is a process that should include security testing of the app, the use of robust authentication and access controls for communications with backend databases. Um, However, organizations concerned with the potential risks to mobile devices in their environment, they should consider exploring the use of mobile device management, MDM platforms, that can centralize the control and enable remote management of data security, um, the configuration, software deployment, other admin functions of of their devices. Companies should also explore the use of application containerization solutions that may be used to isolate enterprise applications or data on employees' personal devices. And finally, it, it all really goes back to general security best practices to enterprise mobile devices. Um, what are the what are the access controls? They should be fairly strict. Uh, data encryption is a must, um, and always training users to recognize potential threats. Hmm. All right, well, interesting information for sure. Betsy Carmelite, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's Betsy Carmelite from Booz Allen. We're going to be making our way through their 2021 Cyber Threat Trends Report over the next few Mondays. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It's Australian for beer. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ah, I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.